Bonjour, bienvenue au podcast Sugar Science. Nous attirons l'attention sur les scientifiques qui étudient le diabète type 1. Notre but est de communiquer aussi avec des scientifiques du monde entier. Et aujourd'hui, nous commençons avec deux invités. Le docteur Arun Schreider, qui est engagé dans un projet d'entreprise au Royaume-Uni, et docteur Philippe Blanco, qui est renommé pour ses recherches, et maître de conférences à l'Université Côte d'Azur depuis 2013. Il est l'auteur de plusieurs publications et aujourd'hui nous allons parler de ces publications avec Dr. Schreider concernant les bio-bioélectriques, le pancréas et les maladies auto-immunes. Bienvenue Dr. Schreider et Dr. Blanco pour être avec nous aujourd'hui. Merci pour être avec nous aujourd'hui. Thank you, Brigitte, for that wonderful introduction and welcome um, Arun Shridhar, PhD, who's uh, located in the UK, and Dr. Philippe Blanco from the Côte d'Azur of France. Thank you. Thank It's you a pleasure much. to be here. Yeah. We're really excited to talk about uh, both your careers in the space of bioelectric uh, research, particularly to talk about a, a really interesting paper that you both authored in 2019. Let's just talk a little bit, um, maybe just a little bit about your your backstory, your careers. Um, Arun, do you want to talk a little bit about your, your career a little bit? What brought you to this sort of bioelectric work? Yeah. So th thanks so much, Monica. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and I'm glad that uh, Philippe and I had a little hand in terms of contributing to the science in the area. I would not have predicted that I would have been working on type 1 diabetes a few years ago. So uh, thanks to Philippe. Um, and and our wonderful collaboration that we've had over the years that has enabled us to do that. So about myself, I um, wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon, um, originally from India, in South of India, and uh, did not get to be that. I trained as a physician assistant um, back in India, especially in pediatric cardiac surgery. Uh, and I had a hand in establishing one of the first homograph valve banks in all of South Asia. Um, back in the day. And then I moved to the US for my PhD and postdoc uh, at the Ohio State University, um, had a very, very productive career there. And after a few years there, um, or almost close to a decade there, I uh, got recruited by GlaxoSmithKline to come and work for the preclinical safety team. Uh, once that was, I was there for three years, had a hand in many products uh, or many uh, medicines or future medicines, compounds, I must say, that are currently in late stage development, working on their uh, early clinical safety uh, aspects of that, preclinical as well as in early clinical trials, phase one, phase two. And uh, then in 2013, um, I got the chance to be one of the founding members of the bioelectronics R&D unit. Uh, within GlaxoSmithKline. It was started purely as um, an experimental research unit at the time to really look at the fact that while a pharmaceutical company like GlaxoSmithKline has looked at multiple um, kind of therapeutic um, molecules uh, from a small molecule and, a, and an antibody perspective, et cetera, um, we also wanted to kind of look at what else that was out there. So that was the real onus at the time to really try it, uh, dabble in it for uh, a year in a very intense way, and then show um, the corporate executive team. Uh, and the whole team was actually reporting to the chairman of R&D at the time, 
and uh, to show that there was a pipeline of opportunities that one could actually look at. So that's how I got to be um, the architect of the whole portfolio there. Um, then that's how I got to know Philippe. Um, and Philippe actually contacted us. And at that time, he had already published a really wonderful paper uh, early that year, uh, looking at kind of beta-2 agonists and, and salbutamol and its impact on cross-presentation. So I let Philippe kind of address that when, when he talks about that. And then in 2016, we formed Gelvani Bioelectronics, which was a spin out out of GSK with the two parent companies, GSK and uh, Verily, which was formerly called as Google Life Sciences. So was there the company for uh, through the whole process up until very recently where I stepped away to pursue my entrepreneurial ambitions at this point of time. And I'm kind of working on a few ideas uh, to kind of set up my own company uh, in the bioelectronic space at this point of time. So that's that's me. Fantastic. That's quite a that's quite a career. And I, it, I you have a deep knowledge in this space. So I cannot wait to hear um, what else I must say. Offer. I must say one thing during my what was not supposed to be a job interview it was supposed to be a lunch. I was asked uh, as an electrophysiologist at the time, having worked in cardiac electrophysiology, I was asked when the whole idea was basically an idea, the whole bioelectronics effort was an idea. I was asked, is this a good thing to pursue? And my only answer to, uh, to my boss at the time or who, who would be my future boss at the time was that what took or what takes a big company like GSK this long to actually go into this area because nerves control our bodily functions almost on a second by second basis. In fact, even uh, much more uh, in smaller timeframes than that. So, and I worked a lot on autonomic nervous system and its impact on cardiovascular science, et cetera. So this was just a no brainer for me to jump in and do the work. Yeah, and no, I think um, I'm really interested to talk about what you guys did do and also really hopeful that you will continue in this same realm. Philippe, can you talk a little bit about your background and just bring us up to speed? What, how did you get to where, you know, writing that paper, basically? Yeah, uh, thanks very much for having us and to discuss about our work. And I'm really happy to participate to this podcast with my colleague and friend, uh, Arun. And um, actually, my, my background is uh, immunology. So I'm, I'm an immunologist by training, and I worked mainly in uh, antiviral uh, immunity for many years and um, and then I shifted to autoimmunity actually when I came back in France I did a, a PhD a postdoc in uh, in the US and then I accidentally actually discovered the power of the nervous system uh, can, that it can have on the immunity on immunity uh, by just testing, testing some drugs and one of them happens to be the uh, beta agonist so and then at this time I realized how important the immune system is for to control uh, immunity. And uh, that's when I shifted to neuroimmunology. So I joined an institute which was more dedicated to neurology. And I started to work with uh, um, stimulating nerves, recording nerves, which was really completely uh, very different with what I did in my, my background. So, and then in 2000, back in 2013, I participate to this incredible meeting that Arun described in, uh, in uh, New York, 
uh, it was during Christmas and it was really for me, it was really a gift because it, I, I, it was a gathering of a lot of great scientists that worked on bioelectronics. And I met there uh, Kevin Tracy, but also Dominique Duran and, and many, many other people, Steve Lewis, many other people that helped me a lot and to acquire a knowledge that I didn't have at this time uh, on uh, neuro, neurophysiology. And, um, and it helped me a lot to apply this knowledge to what I knew about uh, autoimmunity and what can be done in uh, autoimmune diseases. So I think that was, it was a great, uh, uh, I mean, I think that was by, by chance, but uh, definitely it was a, a, a great, great thing to do. And, uh, and we had very, very nice um, adventure with, with Arun. We, had, we, we did a lot. And uh, it was a, a discovery every step of the way. We we really discovered uh, new 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 data, and uh, it was really very exciting. These years were really exciting. Yeah, no, I think um, this this whole realm of uh, bioelectrics is just starting to gain traction in the U.S. And we'll talk a little bit about who's who's working this space. But, you know, it really does. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, we did, we did a podcast earlier in the year with Kwifu uh, Ma at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And he, is, uh, he had a very interesting paper about, you know, looking at um, how uh, acupuncture, you know, the traditional acupuncture can have real impact on uh, blood sugar levels and you know, in, uh, inflammation and things like that. So that was really interesting. But I mean, if you even start from that, ba you know, sort of basic level that there's been uh, interface uh, with this modality for thousands of years, especially from the Asian culture, culture it, it, it kind of brings you to the space of, oh, this is exciting. And, and um, you know, let's, let's bring this into the autoimmune space um, because uh, it is an inflammation. It is, uh, you know, there is nerve at, at play. There's nerve control of the islet secretion. So, yeah, I mean, I think what you guys have done is bring this forward. And I, I, I'm excited to sort of showcase your work to, the, uh, to our audience, to our scientific audience. So let's talk about your paper. This, this paper was uh, entitled uh, Pancreatic Nerve Electrostimulation Inhibits Recent Onset Autoimmune Diabetes. It came out in Nature Biotechnology. That's pretty huge in 2019, Nature paper. It was, it was done in autoimmune mice. What, what drove the hypothesis? Can you speak to this? I want, do you want to, oh, I can. Yeah, so le le let me actually start this. So I think the, so I, as I said before, we had as as a company and as a research unit with CasterNet really wide, and we were contacted by Philippe at the time, who actually had some really really interesting data. I think the first things in areas like, uh, especially where the influence of the autonomic nervous system uh, impacts on various organ organ systems, etc., we were pretty much at a fishing expedition uh, level at the time. And Philippe's data actually signified a very important link towards neurotransmitters and ultimately what happens with respect to cross-presentation. So Philippe's paper at the time uh, showed that beta-2 agonists could really impact antigen cross-presentation. And then the idea was um, 
we knew that stimulation of the beta receptors through a selective beta 2 agonist did that. Now the question is, can this, can we elicit uh, a similar response in, in using a stimulation of the nerve? And if so, what would that look like? And I think the aspect of kind of the really industrious collaboration uh, between us came about saying, while in the previous paper, Philippe had actually looked purely at, 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 at I think it was healthy mice. I don't think you had actually looked at disease mice, if I remember correctly. Philippe. No, no, so no. I think we basically said, okay, if we are to move the needle here, we need to demonstrate that the principles of, of stimulating the nerve work in a healthy mice. We need to show that we are able to selectively stimulate the nerve. And then once we are able to elicit that, let's take that forward into a disease model. So that was kind of a, a long journey, uh, knowing that we knew that it was it was difficult uh, to do. Um, and But that's how the whole idea came about, was to really uh, force us into thinking and seeing if we can do so. Um, and that's where I think I, I, I let Philippe explain all of the impact on on the data in 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 on antigen cross presentation and type 1 diabetes but for me i think the most interesting data sets that is in the paper that most type 1 diabetes folks will not talk about but i am extremely proud of 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 our collaboration and what we were able to achieve was our especially philippe's and philippe's lab members ability to show that they were able to selectively target the, the lymph nodes around the pancreas. And we also did some positive and negative controls, et cetera, that is in the paper. I think it's figure one, if I'm correct, if I remember it correctly, which basically showed that. And there was a combination of neurophysiological techniques as well as that. And, and I think Philippe had no idea as to how he did it. And the fact that they, they actually went in and learned those techniques, were able to verify them and we're able to execute them, et cetera, is really a tribute to the wonderful talent uh, that they have uh, 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 there in France. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was basically the, so what we wanted to show first was that we can selectively target the innervation to the lymph nodes, because that was really the critical part here. Not so much about globally affecting autonomic tone, not so much about globally affecting the inflammatory cascades because all of that had been shown with the vagus nerve. And we did not think that that was a mechanism that was at play here because a sympathetic agonist, especially a salbutamol like beta-2 agonist will selectively target the sympathetic fiber. So that was the motivation and how we arrived at, at, the, at the hypothesis. And I let Philippe kind of explain the data that's in the paper. I love that lead up, and I especially love the fact that um, you both knew it was a, a large and daunting project, and you did it anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah, th thanks to the support of, of Galvani, Jeskins, and Galvani. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you, uh, Arun. I think that's uh, uh, the main point here to understand is that uh, we were targeting the, the, the location where the initiation of the immune response was was occurring, and it was lymph nodes, like pancreatic lymph nodes, and we we, we really um, focus on this uh, issue. Try to identify the nerves that would project onto this lymph node uh, specifically, so we could inhibit the inflammation that was initiated in this uh, this lymph node. So we first started with some some mice, transgenic mice that 
that had some, some red nerves. And then we, so what we did is that we, we located this nerve into the ganglion uh, in, the, in the lymph node. And then we, we got the, the nerve uh, that we could stimulate. And I remember the, I mean, um, the, the very first time we did this was with, with two electrical wires, <laughs> really, uh, <laughs> literally two electrical wires um, where we stimulated the pancreatic uh, nerve. And uh, it's so tiny. It's, it's a nerve that is 30 to 50 micron diameter. It's something like half the, the diameter of, of a hair. And yeah. it's, it's very challenging to, to stimulate first, but then also to implant electrode. And that was a real tour de force uh, by our, one of our, our team member, Clara Panzolini, who really is able now to implant an electrode onto this nerve and in a non-invasive way and chronically, where you can put the, uh, the, the wires going out of the, of the mouse on the, on the head cap, and then you plug the mouse with, a, with a, the um, uh, external uh, stimulator, and, uh, and you can stimulate the animal for, for days, weeks, and even months. So, so this was, I think, that's the and most And I think what you mean part. to say there was the, was the small incision surgery rather than a laparotomy. So not, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's small incision yeah. surgery rather than doing a full laparotomy in a mice, yeah. uh, which yes, would yes. be difficult. Yeah, so sorry. Very, yeah, very important. That. Yeah. yeah, very yeah, important. It, it is very important because, um, because it's non-invasive and it, it helps to keep the animal um, in a healthy condition, and when you have an animal that is a diabetic, it's very important to have it um, to, to have a, a minimally invasive surgery. And um, so this was a, the very the, the technical challenge in this uh, <clears throat> on, the, on this paper. And then so once we have we had identified the uh, the nerve, we could we could look at what was the effect on the lymph node. <clears throat> and so actually, what we saw is that like. When you stimulate a sympathetic nerve, so you have an anti-inflammatory impact on immune cells. So you have a decrease of pro-inflammatory cytokines. But the interesting thing here, as Harun highlighted it, is that it only happens into the, the, the pancreatic lymph node, which was huge because we, we, we could expect that there was some, some, some other side, side effects that some inhibition inflammation elsewhere, but it not, it's not the case. If you look at the spleen, which is really close to the pancreas, there is no, no effect. So, um, so that was the first thing we, we checked. And also what we see, so actually what, what we saw is that I could tell, uh, once we did the experiment, I could tell uh, if the animal were electrostimulated or not after, after one week, just looking at the pancreatic lymph node, because we could, we could see that after electrostimulation, the pancreatic lymph node en was enlarged. It's really you can this is something that you can even see by eyes, and wow. um, and we confirm this really by uh, with uh, with flow cytometry of course with quantification of the immune cells in the pancreatic uh, lymph node. So it showed that uh, there is some trapping of immune cells into the lymph node. So if you stimulate the pancreatic nerve, you can trap um, pathogenic T cells into the lymph node. And wow. uh, and last but not least, what we saw is that when you do that actually you decrease also the ability of the, the, the presenting cells. So the presenting cell would go, would go from the pancreas to the lymph node to present antigen, self-antigen to pathogenic T cells that would proliferate and it attacks the pancreas later on. So um, what we saw is that when you electrostimulate, you downregulate, uh, the, you, you inhibit the cross-presentation 
to CD8 cells. So you diminish the ability of these presenting cells to present to pathogenic cells. And that's probably why uh, you, can, you can then uh, have an, an physiological impact on the development of the disease. And then I think that's, uh, we, we can argue whether um, going into a, a high impact journal is difficult or not, but <laughs> it took us something like two years because they asked us a, a very difficult challenging experiment, which was to demonstrate that in, in the spontaneously um, diabetic mice, diabetic prone mice, you can, by stimulating the nerve, you can inhibit the, the, the disease. And so it took us quite a bit of time, but we, we managed to stimulate chronically this animal. And, um, and, and to my surprise, there was really, really uh, a dramatic changes in, in, uh, in um, glycemia um, management by, um, by the, the animals. You can see that uh, if you don't stimulate the, the electrostimulated animal, you have you, the animal go back to hypoglycemia really rapidly after, after surgery. Whereas if you stimulate them, they keep no, the glycemia, the normal glycemia, uh, yeah. 100 think, milligram per deciliter. Yeah, and I think in terms of just evolution, so we had all of the all of the control experiments, the mechanism of action experiments yeah. in healthy mice, and then we moved over to the to the nod mice data. Yeah. And in the nod mice, we actually were waiting for the animals to develop insulitis and as a result, hyperglycemia. And then our first data set was basically the last panel of the figure, uh, which is right. we, want, we only wanted to stimulate when the glycemia goes up about a, uh, above mm. a certain threshold. And then we would stimulate for a couple of days or a few days, and then we would watch for the glycemia fall down and then we would stop the stimulation, wanting to see how long it would stay. And then once we stopped the stimulation, things went back. So it was almost like these animals were already down a certain path. And then stimulation basically prevented them, in a way, from having the hyperglycemia like, episodes, etc. And there is some information on the inflammatory cells. So that was the first data that we went to a journal with and talking about how long it took for yeah, us to right. get it published. And then we said... Okay, and then a few of the reviewers were from a journal that we got rejected from, uh, a bit more higher impact than Nature Biotech. They basically came back and said, you need to show us that it's almost completely preventing. So that's when instead of going to, from a reactive stimulation, we went to a prophylactic stimulation. And that was the, the other figure that precedes the, uh, the reactive stimulation data. So you'll see a reduction in slope in the reaction it takes longer for the animals to kind of develop fulminant insulitis and ultimately drop off in the survival chart. And then the other one was the more kind of prophylactic simulation, which where instead of waiting, you basically started stimulating. And that was pretty dramatic in a way in terms mm. of the data. Um, but then it, that, had, that data, although it's interesting from a scientific perspective, I think it has its own translatable challenges because how do you diagnose people? Uh, I, people with with that at that stage. I mean, do you really intervene? I think it's an interesting scientific question that's important to answer from from a, a publication standpoint. But from a translational developmental standpoint, that's a bit of of a red herring, in my opinion. Uh, um, and then. I think we submitted that and then the reviewers came back with another question, which is to say that now you go back, you have shown that beta 2 agonist was selective. 
um, in or uh, or selective beta two agonists was indeed affecting cross presentation in your previous paper. Now show that in the presence of a beta blocker, your nerve stimulation does not have any effect because then we will trust that it was it was indeed a neurotransmitter nerve stimulation mediated effect. So Philippe actually yeah. heroically did the next experiment with propranolol, which is a beta blocker in the presence of a stimulated mice and showed that the animals actually had, uh, or it the propranolol basically blocked the effect of stimulation in the animals, et cetera. So I think that all of those were really heroic experiments. It took a lot of time. Yeah. And it was also a cause of a lot of heartache during the review process for us <laughs> as well. Well, they really put you through the paces. Um, and I feel like, you know, you responded to every, you know, every new request with an answer, which is, it is very heroic. And um, it, it is interesting how, how much they really asked from you there. Um, but I think it was great that you were able to display that this is really what was going on there. And I, I would ask you sort of just as a thought experiment, if you think about it, when some, a child usually is diagnosed with type one diabetes, you know, they come in, they have DKA to the hospital, they are um, given insulin and the, and reestablish sort of a, a normal glycemic profile. Um, but then they enter the honeymoon, right? And so that honeymoon, uh, it would be very interesting to know what really is going on there and whether or not the, the lymph node, uh, you know, what's going on in the landscape of that lymph node at that time period, that'd be cool. But also right now, um, SEMA, which is a biotech company um, driven by Doug Melton at the Harvard um, Stem Cell Institute, he's made these uh, incredible beta cells that are derived from stem cells and uh, was bought by Vertex. And now just yesterday, Vertex announced that they are going to start uh, clinical trials in 17, uh, you know, pretty sick individuals. They have uh, hypoglycemia unawareness, so it's very dangerous. And I mean, you could imagine that, you know, this would be the kind of patient that might be the first set of patients to try something like this. And I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, Medtronic and others have these sort of you know, pain blocking electrostimulation um, devices. And I mean, there's even Setpoint has one for RA. Um, what's the big, uh, what's the big gap? I mean, what's the big risk, I guess, for somebody who's really so desperate medically um, to try something like this, some iteration of this at that point? Yeah. So, uh, th there are a couple of considerations, and I think I'm going to state this because I don't work for Galvani Bioelectronics anymore, but I'm purely answering this as a skilled person in the art, as someone who has, um, who knows what the, some of the translation challenges are um, with respect to kind of the nerve target and what it possibly comes to. So the key thing to understand is that um, is that all of the studies that we've had done are all in mice, right? I think mice um, have a certain amount of, of lymph nodes. I think it's probably, I might be completely wrong, but I think it's around just around 10, if I'm correct. Whereas, or just below 10, or uh, how uh, much five, is it, Philippe? For mice? No, no, it's four, four. Four. Three or four. four. Okay, so whereas in the humans, yeah, if it's I remember, very, it's close yeah. to twenty, and it's yes, kind of spread it all along the yeah. the 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 entire pancreatic anatomy. So, yeah. which in itself, in terms of neural control of the various 
innervation to the various organs around that particular structure in the, in the GI system um, comes from multiple sources. And also, I think this is, this is uh, so one needs to a traditional kind of a spinal cord stimulation lead, which is basically what we would describe as equivalent to a percutaneous lead or a paddle lead, et cetera, is very big. And you can't, it would be very non-specific to stimulate in the gut with that because you might be stimulating the gut muscle itself. It might be stimulating a bunch of other structures around it. Um, and therefore you want some to design a technology solution that would ultimately be bespoke for this particular nerve target. But then the additional challenge is that you need to work with the difference in scale between a mice and, and, and a large animal to a human, and which I think needs additional translational work. So I think those are all questions that need, requires answering uh, to even to develop a particular kind of uh, prototype electrode, et cetera. Um, I think it has to be bespoke to the particular anatomy, which is very different uh, between a pancreatic nerve to say a hepatic nerve as an example, right? So because yeah. there are two different structures, et cetera. So that's through good clarity, actually. Yeah, so I, I, th therein lies the challenge. Uh, uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why projects like these are, are seen um, as high risk. Um, but also high reward at the same time in terms of the impact that it can create for patients. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the the work that we did, that we published, I think we're very happy to get it out here. And and the IP, et cetera, is kind of rest, is is licensed to, to Gilvani at this point of time from Philippe's lab. And I think Gilvani will probably uh, kind of make a decision to kind of pursue that project, et cetera, which I think I'd, I can't really comment on uh, at this point of time. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, it's still great to know. It's a, important information for young scientists who are interested in this type of work to know who the players are, you know, on the, in the academic stage and uh, industry stage and, and sort of get a feel for what's going on out there and maybe start thinking about this on their own and maybe other approaches they might do. I did want to take a turn and talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, you stimulated the pancreatic nerve in this study while a subsequent study by Matthias von Herreth at La Jolla Institute eliminated the pancreatic nerve. In his paper, two strategies for eliminating sympathetic innervation were tested, physical denervation, which was achieved by cutting an efferent uh, tyrosine hydroxylase positive nerve bundle innervating the pancreas at the superior mesenteric artery, that's from figure S1, A, and B, and chemical denervation using 6-hydroxydopamine, 6-OHDA, a neurotoxin that depletes peripheral sympathetic neurons. Um, so this was a, a different um, approach than that you had. Can you distinguish between these two approaches? So if I can comment on that, so I'm a big fan of Matthias von Ira, so I, I, I really liked his paper. And um, actually, I think he, he, he denervated the pancreatic nerves. He, he did the, uh, the, um, the sympathetic chemical uh, sympathectomy, but it all, he also denervated the, the pancreatic nerve. Um, yeah, I, I would okay. need some more detail whether uh, it's, this nerve is the same as the one we, we stimulated. Okay. Um, but but this, but this is very interesting because uh, what he saw is that when he denervated uh, this nerve, um, he, he can inhibit 
the, um, the development of type 1 diabetes in a model, in a transgenic mice model, which is uh, a little bit different from what we did. And I think that the important thing here to understand is that cutting a nerve and stimulating a nerve is very different. Yeah. Cutting a nerve is, yeah, it, you, you, you take out the, the sympathetic tone that you would have on, uh, on, uh, on organs. Uh, whereas stimulating, you know, that you, you force the system, you, you increase the, the quantity of neurotransmitters that you will release uh, at the, the level of the, of the organ. So definitely it's very different. And we ended up with very different conclusion. He said, he, he concluded that sympathetic nerve tone may be um, detrimental. Uh, I mean, a, a problem for, um, it, it would, yeah, detrimental to the, I mean, actually, no, it would increase the development of type 1 diabetes. Whereas when we stimulate, we would inhibit the development of type 1 diabetes. But actually, if we look carefully to the data that we have, when we cut the nerve in the, pancre in the pancreatic nerve in nod mice, we got exactly the same result that what he, uh, he got. So it's very interesting to see how dramatic can be the, the the, the result, the difference in the result when you stimulate or you cut a nerve, and this this uh, uh, speaks to the the mechanism behind this. And I think that a big release of norepinephrine can make big difference, can be anti-inflammatory, because if you look at the data we have published, we only stimulate uh, two minutes every six hours, so it's something like twelve minutes per day. It's very very low. Um, it's a very small stimulation uh, in uh, both in time and in, uh, in, uh, um, in, in frequency, it's only 10 Hertz. So it's this burst of norepinephrine is enough, uh, I think, to, to, um, to drive the immune system towards the inhibition of inflammation of auto autoimmunity. Whereas if, when you cut the nerve, uh, the sympathetic tone might be a prob problematic uh, for the development of, of type 1 diabetes, might, might increase the development of type 1 diabetes. I just wanted to bring in one thing here. Um, there has been, there's been just sort of a smoking gun. People have talked about sympathetic tone, maybe a problem there, but I spoke to Jacob Hexer um, Sorensen. He's from the Netherlands. He has a company called Gubra and they do uh, light sheet microscopy on the, on the eyelids. And he's kind of, he inferred in his work and others have that um, there might be like almost like a pacemaker cell in the eyelids. Right. So this pacemaker cell and I had a discussion with him. We we're like, could it be like bad Wi-Fi? Like the sympathetic tone is like, you know, because, you know, in the heart, just to you, Arun, you know, you have the cardiac background. You, we, you've got the, um, the SA and the AV node. Right. And so the SA node is driving uh, the train. Right. For the heart's uh, conduct conductivity. And and. Why wouldn't, I mean, maybe that, this is way far out there, but may, maybe there's some kind of um, similar mechanism there. And you can imagine like, if there was some problem with vagal tone and the sentinel cell is not doing its job, then you might have, you know, uh, maybe not uh, synchronized secretion of insulin. Maybe you get a problem going there and then you've got hypo, hyperglycemia, high levels of sugar in the blood it's very toxic to the beta cells, right? So then they start really going sideways. I don't know. It's just like a total, just throwing it out there. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? Because when people talk about nerves, I think it, there's a whole lot of language that gets garbled in the in the in the whole uh, area. First thing is when they talk about signaling, people talk about tone because it's known that the the autonomic balance, what is traditionally referred to as the autonomic balance, is really an index of parasympathetic tone because it's un it's always thought, or at least it's currently thought um, by people that activation of the parasympathetic fibers slows your heart rate down and slows your respiration uh, to much more of a deeper respiration. All of that is an inspiration that's drawn from people with exercise training and therefore it's good. And what it happens is that your sympathetic fibers, which are basically the ones that drive your fight or flight responses gets dampened. So that's one school of thought that people actually have. I would actually argue that that is actually not entirely true because uh, I think the Vegas definitely acts as a break and it sets, it's much more dynamic and sets the autonomic balance, but the sympathetic nervous system is called as a sympathetic uh, is sympathetic for a reason because it actually you need to perform some essential bodily functions that uh, based on the state of the of the system and the only thing that quickly responds there is a sympathetic system especially in terms of hormone releases and, and other things uh, especially in the GI system as an example then there is the whole other school of thought which is the I mean especially if there are other people especially high school students and young kids who would listen to this and know of Ohm's law. Um, and there is a whole difference between exploring a parasympathetic nerve, like the big transatlantic cable that Vegas is, to actually looking at the sympathetic tone. Uh, just again, coming back to traditional Ohm's law, because if you understand Ohm's law, you, un you can understand everything about electricity, right? Uh, similarly, I think you can explain the difference between a parasympathetic system and a sympathetic system. A, a vagus nerve basically is a collection of uh, resistances in, in series. So therefore, if you affect one, you or if you have a if you dampen down something or you stimulate it, you tend to affect the the resistances or the conductivities in almost all the fibers, just depending on the size of the fibers, really. I mean, but you tend to affect at a given parameter set, if you're going really high you will actually affect it. And that's one of the big reasons why vagal nerve stimulation causes a lot of side effects. Whereas the sympathetic system is really, really intricate. It, it is regionally compartmentalized. And one of the big reasons why people get really uh, kind of half comatose after a really heavy meal and want to, want to have a siesta after a heavy meal is purely because the sympathetic nerves can dynamically regulate the blood supply to the gut without actually affecting blood supply to the brain and the heart, et cetera, or, or rather it reduce the cerebrovascular supply, but keeps the blood supply to the kidneys, et cetera, intact. So it has a beautiful dynamic way of regulating, which is resistance in parallel. So therefore it's, I think people need to be careful. My point here, what I'm driving to here is that people need to be really careful when they talk about autonomic tone and what it does. And then you have to go one level deeper and say, okay, what is the function that one is talking and what is mediating that function? And if so, first of all, what is that nerve that you can, that you can really, that modulates that function? And then you can define it by whether it is a parasympathetic nerve or a sympathetic nerve being, it's a vaguely derived nerve or a sympathetic nerve. But I'll also tell this, People, again, this is, this is my pet peeve in the area. 
people actually say that just because um a couple of days ago me and philippe were actually laughing about it as well on one of the other papers that we were that we were writing up people say if it's cholinergic it's actually parasympathetic or it's vaguely driven that's absolute nonsense because i can tell you a number of sympathetic nerves that actually signal using acetylcholine until the very end the classic example is the sympathetic nerve that goes from the spinal cord to the adrenal gland to release noradrenaline glucocorticoids everything from the adrenal medulla the it passes through multiple ganglia but there is no synapse of those fibers until it reaches the adrenal medulla and there it releases acetylcholine that then goes and phosphorylates the vesicles that uh, transmit the vesicles to release it and that the neurotransmitter that's released from the adrenal medulla is norepinephrine or epinephrine depending on the pore size and a bunch of other neuropeptides but the actual neurotransmitter that mediates the release of norepinephrine is acetylcholine so people should be really careful about about generalizing stuff about sympathetic and and non and parasympathetic so there is a layer of questions that people need to critically ask when they refer to autonomic balance are they referring to global balance or specific tone to an organ uh, which nerve are they talking about why is that nerve being talked about what is the correlation etc so i think it's almost like just like the way think of a molecular pathway uh, and think about what are the mediating kind of whether it's beta arrestin or or a g protein coupled receptor uh, kind of re- receptor path phospholipase c etc etc in a molecular pathway you need to start thinking about this the nerves in a very similar manner and i think people don't necessarily think about it they tend to generalize it yeah. i think that's a problem in the area this this um that explanation was really excellent and i'll i'll tell you why i don't think you know we don't have too many high school students listening but we do have graduate students and um postdocs but the issue in this field is it's very multifactorial right you have many disciplines looking at this disease so that explanation is going to really be very important for those who are like the gwas people or the um people who are you know strictly uh heavy immune driven or those that are sort of in the clinic and i think that's really really a, it was a great explanation and it and it 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 informs i think the audience and and uh, in a way of like like what are the caveats what do we have to really start thinking about carefully and help people sort of drill down and in their own system when they're when they're you know it puts their own system that they're looking at in context so that was so great thank you very much what about this whole idea of that sentinel though the sentinel cell in the islet that's you know receiving you know the signal I and mean, what do you think of that is that just totally nah Philip should answer that uh, um I I am uh, Philip is probably much more closer to that than I am Philip over to you Uh actually I'm not sure what you are referring to and what exactly are you referring to Oh what I just said you know that this that there may be one sort of you know cell one of the one of the cells in the islet is controlling the secretion um you know sets the the secretory unit basically of secretion um and people are starting to talk about that and i just didn't know if you had any input in, in terms of how that might interplay with its innervation actually that's interesting because uh, <laughs> we we didn't we didn't really explore 
the islet itself. Once again, we really focus on the pancreatic lymph node. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we did that is because the nerve we were stimulating is not projecting to the beta islets. Right. And that's very interesting because I think that's that's a target we should we should look at when we want to translate it to human is a nerve that would project onto the pancreatic lymph node and not onto the pancreas. Because if you look at the nerves that project, project to the, to the um, pancreas, then you will mess up with all uh, glucagon, insulin secretion, sentinel cells, whatever. And I think that's, that might be a mistake. And I think that we should definitely more focus on the secondary lymphoid organs innovation than on the innovation of the pancreas. I think. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. If anyone has any negative data out there, you can place it on our negative data repository on the sugar science and others can find it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So it's hard to find that negative data, but it is so important, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's other than positive data. I completely agree with you. Completely. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, I mean, I just think that this is, I've really enjoyed um, talking with you both. You have such a wealth of knowledge in this area. I wondered if you can, you know, I, I guess I'll just say that, you know, in the States, people are starting to look at bioelectric approaches. Uh, you talked about Mateus von Harith, Medina Makmutova in Alejandro Cahydro's lab at University of Miami. She's, she just got a great paper out February, 2020. Elliot Durr in Kevin Otto's lab at U University of Florida. He had a really interesting review, July, 2020. Um, what other, do you know of any follow-up work being done in Europe, other labs, uh, you know, as a skilled scientist, uh, what do you think might be the next steps in exploring this system and scaling findings? So first, Philippe, do you know of other labs who are working on nerve stimulation for, for, for type 1 diabetes? diabetes? I'm not aware of any of them uh, right do away I. that comes to my mind. Yeah, neither do I. And um, yeah, I think think that's an underexplored uh, area, I think. Yeah, and I but think it's, it because it's challenging be... too. It is challenging too, sorry. Yeah, and I, and I think in terms of just challenges that, that one needs to think about, I think it's uh, as a skilled person in the art here uh, of, of, of development of bioelectronic medicines here and having had the experience, I think one needs to really pay attention to anatomy, 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 and going back to old school kind of techniques of picking the right target, the anatomical target to understand the differences between mice and man. Um, and then ultimately um, kind of understanding what the functions there might be with those, with those differences that might be at play. And then um, kind of then working to develop a, a, a prototype electrode, et cetera, that might fit the anatomy. Uh, I think those are all kind of clear challenges from a de development perspective. I think from a clinical perspective, I think there are many more experts than, than I am on the type one diabetes area, but then it's also a question about um, which patients does one go into, um, when and how, um, how do we justify that based on the information and where, what the treatment regimen that they might be on uh, at the present time and who might be volunteering for an invasive therapy, et cetera, for an implantable device really, right? Um, I think those are all things that needs to be worked out. And uh, I think, I think, um, yeah, if companies are out there looking at this, I think they are in it for the long haul 
um and i think it's it's hats off to them and i think um yeah the, 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 that's about the only kind of comment that i can make on on the challenges there monica that's that's good that's a very excellent um set of um you know points and i mean do you have anything to to add philippe no i i think it's a great discussion and uh, i think we really went to the bottom of the yeah. story and um yeah it was really great discussing with you i wondered if um you know right now our um i guess if you are looking for collaborators or um you know anyone to work in your laboratory you feel free to do a shout out now um you know yes we're always looking for uh, for good students and for postdocs motivated postdocs so yes i would be great if people want to join uh, i'll be happy to discuss with them definitely yeah fantastic thank you both so very much for you know talking with us today I really appreciate the deep dive and um you know kind of the sort of far flung thought experiments i appreciate you bearing with me so thanks again yeah thank you and one thanks one very last much monica yeah. no go ahead good arun no i was just going to give a shout out to the electrodes as well that we use i mean those are not bespoke electrodes mm -hmm. that we used in the muran experiments those are things that one can actually purchase from cotec which is a company uh, at freiburg in germany um and uh, do quote kind of philips kind of name in terms of the the papers etc and i think the the cuffs are commercially available for people to order uh, it takes a while uh, so unless you know and they're not cheap but it's definitely doable uh, and philip and his wonderful lab members can provide any help with respect to kind of sure. surgeries and other things that people might want to if they are really interested fantastic. definitely i'll be i'll be happy to do that definitely that's fantastic and um i i think you are both members on the sugar science so if anyone wants to join the sugar science and actually connect on our private intranet we're happy to um you know facilitate that as well so have a great rest of your evening <laughs> on the continent there thank and we'll, you very much uh, we'll hope to speak again yeah it's a pleasure thank, thank you. you very much thank you very much